music, news, interviews, live events, and more. Welcome to the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. Welcome to the Hivecast, episode one. And I'm very excited to have Mark Ronson as the first guest here on the Hive. It's always great to see you, Mark. You know, I wanted to um, really go focus back on, on the beginning of your life, too, because fans of your music and your production really want to have an inside idea of, of what it was like growing up. And, you know, you were, um, of course, born in England and lived in St. John's Wood. Yeah. Um, now, your dad, he was involved in fashion, but he was also a band manager. What bands did he manage back in those he days? He managed this band called Bucks Fizz that won the Eurovision Song Contest. They were had, huge for a while. They, they had one really big song. They were like the English ABBA. He had a good ear for music. He was probably partying quite a bit in those days, so he was around on the scene. I, I would wake up sometimes on the way to school, and you know, you don't realize what's going on when you're four years old, and you see your dad playing, you know, chess with Daryl Hall at like nine in the morning. Then when you get older, you realize exactly what they were doing. <laughs> you realize that they were partying all night yeah, long like, uh, and had not gone to sleep from the night before, right? Yeah. Why did Dad wake up at six in the morning and invite Daryl Hall over <laughs> to play chess? That's not what happened. <laughs> it's, it's great. But my parents, were they were really cool. And you know, like uh, my dad knew so much about music and was such a big fan of soul music. And I'd wake up in the middle of the night, come down and start playing drums in front of the speaker air drums obviously i didn't have any real drums and after a while my dad got me a kit and i started playing drums at four and it just sort of went from there but i would love playing along with things like all right now by free and just like those kind of like rock beats you know yeah it's great and then years later of course you ended up making a lot of beats on your own and yes. playing i think that's probably why drums are always the first thing for me you know whether it's a hip-hop record or something like the amy winehouse stuff or kaiser chiefs it's always the sound of the drums and I know the songs are most important, but if you don't get the drums right from the top, I can hear the best song in the world, man. If the, the snare is like, there's something corny about it, it just it turns me right off. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it makes all the difference in the world. It's like the drum sound and the drummer themselves that is really the backbone of a song. Yes. No matter how you look at it, right? So you um, moved over to New York City when you were eight. Now, when did your mom end up marrying Mick Jones of Farner? How old were you then? I think they married about when I was eight. They hooked up. I was seven. And my mom started seeing Mick, and uh, then she was like, all right, kids, we're moving to New York, you know. And Mick was English, but he lived here. And that was amazing, too. We would sort of go on the road and in the summer doing these festivals at, you know, the absolute peak of Foreigner. And same thing, actually. I would They would let me go on the stage and sit behind the drum riser, this giant drum riser, and I would just sit for the whole hour, 40-minute set and pretend that I was playing drums. Yeah. I was obviously obsessed. It's a shame I wasn't very good at the drums because that's obviously what I wanted to do, but... Obviously, you know, beats, drums, same It worked thing. out for you regardless. Yeah. It was great. So so that was, and what was Mick like uh, having him at that time as a stepdad? Were you a fan of the music that he was doing? You could see that they could write hits. There's yeah, no I, I was a fan. And some of that 70s AM rock, the sound of those guitars, like those leads, you know, those harmony solos are still very much in my DNA. And I love that stuff. Even my dad was a fan of Foreigner, so it wasn't like he was had some crazy, like, oh, my wife left me for some rock star in some shitty band. He was like, my wife left me for a rock star in a band that I actually kind of like. But they, everybody got on there. was never anything funny there. That's amazing. Now, as a kid, you grew up, you and Sean Lennon were, were great friends from the time you were a young kid. And I love that performance you guys do together in the BBC Electric Proms where you did Sail on Sailor by the Beach Boys. I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but that's one of my favorite Beach Boys songs. It never gets cred. I love I that you guys did it. Tell me why you did that song. Is I, it a fave? I, yeah, I got turned on to it. You know, it was my dad. 
He was in the car one time listening to that. My dad is so funny. He's a 60-year-old English dude, but he only listens to, like, Exhibit and Jay-Z in the car. And one time I got in the car, and he's playing this Beach Boys song, Sail on Sailor. And I was like, what is this? And he was like, oh, you don't know this? This is, you know, the song of Holland. And it's that song where they had... Brian Wilson didn't sing on the whole album, did he? And they, they Blondie, Blondie Chaplin, that guy, yeah. yeah. And they were, yeah, he was just soul singer, right? So it's like one whole album where you get the Beach Boys with this guy that sounds like Suge Otis singing lead across the whole record. <laughs> exactly. And it's just incredible because you get those Beach Boys harmonies, this soul vocal, and it's one of my favorite songs ever. I mean, like all your favorite songs, you play them to death and you get sick of them for a bit, but I always come back to that one. Yeah, I love it too. It's one of those, to me, one of the unsung greats. I mean, we all know we love God Only Knows and things like that yeah. but that is another one of those great well, lost beach boys songs it's fantastic that's why i did it with sean that time because we were doing a show with the electric problems and i was thinking what song can i do with sean and sean always makes me think of the beach boys because he's obsessed with brian wilson and that kind of stuff in a good way and i thought well how about we do this song because this is a bit more where i come from you know soul r&b and we do this song together and it was amazing to get to do that with the bbc uh you know, radio orchestra it was like an 80 piece orchestra. That, that one night was really great. We had Terry Hall from the specials come on and sing Our Lips Are Sealed with Santi Gold. Oh, Terry how great. Because he co wrote that. it with Jane Wheatland yeah. when they were having that affair. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, oh man, we had uh, Tim Burgess from the Charlotte Who's great. And Wale. And it was just a crazy night. It's amazing. I love watching the clips from that. A slightly unknown singer at that time named Adele. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was that when you did God Put a Smile on Your Face? Was that what you ended up we doing? We might have done. Uh, uh, no, that night we did Cold Shoulder, the song Which that is, I did on her first album. You produced album. it on 19. Yeah, and then we did do Girl Put a Smile at the Brits. And I remember telling the Brits that I wanted, they wanted me to do a medley. So I was like, well, we'll have Amy and Daniel Mary, whether that's obvious. But I want this girl Adele to sing the opening song. because so I want to play Girl Put a Smile and have her sing it. And they're like, well, we don't know about her. You know, she's kind of unknown. And it, it's, it's not maybe not for our demographic. <laughs> I just wish I'd tape recorded somebody saying that. I would love to hear that today. I mean, look at look at Adele. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Getting back to you, your childhood. So tell me about those early years. Mark, those early years in New York City, you and Sean, you guys obviously love music. When did you decide to pick up turntables for the first time and start DJing? Were you already in college at that point or were you in high school? No, I was in high school still. I was playing in bands. It was me, this other white kid and two black kids. And we were, at that time, we really looked up to bands like Living Color and Follow For Now and Fishbone and all the Black Rock Coalition stuff that was 24 happening 24-7 Spies, all those guys. 24-7 Spies. We went to all those shows and we would play CB and open for bands like the Spin Doctors at All Ages Nights at Wetlands. Just like coming from that New York funk rock thing that was going on at the time. I was also really getting into hip-hop and we would have rappers come on stage with us, but like to be honest, we weren't the roots. We weren't very good. We were like a sloppy teenage band, so the raps didn't sound especially great. We would just play the opening rip of Hard to Handle for like four minutes and just let someone rap on it. And then I thought, I well, maybe there's another way that I can express my obsession and love for this music. And I got turntables and I started buying records from Beat Street in Brooklyn and Rock and Soul on 35th, which were the big places to buy your hip hop 12 inches at that time. And uh, I got in pretty quick. I was just pushy and going around handing out my tape to everyone, to people like Frankie and Glaze who did Soul Kitchen and all these other guys. And I got a few gigs and just 
opening for people like Stretch Armstrong and Funkmaster Flack and just I don't know just got to a place where after a few years I was you know doing my own gigs and whatnot. Yeah, and it's amazing. Now those early dates we all remember because I did club DJing when I was younger too. The early dates you made anywhere from fifty to one hundred twenty-five dollars on those first shows, right? When you uh, yeah, spun. if you made one hundred twenty-five bucks, you were psyched. <laughs> yeah. you, that means you probably got like fifty bucks worth of drinks, so you could really justify in your head like I made one hundred seventy-five bucks tonight. I remember my first gig was literally I had to plead the promoter to let me play because it was actually my first gig. It was a snowstorm in New York, and I had to bring my own turntables and sound system, and so like I would have lost like you know, at least a hundred bucks on that gig, but you, you know what it's like. You're just so happy to play music in a room for people. And if you get, you know, half the room dancing, you just, you can't believe it. You're it, over the moon. It's a great feeling, you know, that, and you see that immediate gratification because, you know, you get the immediate reaction, you know, yeah. immediately whether it's working or not and whether they're enjoying the music. Right. Yeah. And I would always get these kind of like these older soul heads that are coming up to me like, how do you know about average white band? You know, cause I got the, some of those old, a lot of those old soul records from my dad. So that was the one way, like, I'd be playing in clubs and people like Puffy and, and, you know, Biggie was still alive then and they would come out and Puffy was always enamored by this, like, scrawny 18-year-old white kid that would play, uh, you know, an hour and a half worth of, like, R&B classics and then he would take me to do gigs for him, for Bad Boy Records, taking me to, you know, London and Paris for the first time. And uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was great. It was a great era to be in New York playing hip-hop because all the best stuff was coming out. It was a rare time when the most commercial stuff was also actually the best stuff, which yeah. doesn't often happen in music. It really, like, linked up at that point. So An exciting time to be doing that. Yeah. Now, what about your first production in producing? Now, Nika Costa, was that the first one? That was the first album. The first production gig I got was a remix for De La Soul for a song off their third album. Which track was that? It was called Din and In. Yeah. And uh, I was such a big fan of Wu-Tang at the time. And uh, I saw that the guy that engineered the Wu-Tang stuff is this guy, Carlos Best. And I'm like, I'm going to get this guy. Not thinking that my sound is nothing like Wu-Tang. It's like one of those things you don't learn until you know you have to mess up once. So I went there, mixing in the studio. He's playing on the huge loudspeakers. It sounds fine. You get into the A&R guy's office three hours later to play it. And it's like the worst sounding thing I've ever heard in my entire life. I, I wanted to start crying. <laughs> it was just like, this is my first production gig and I've completely blown it. And uh, it was just a lesson like, hey, you know, just because you love Wu-Tang doesn't mean that your records should sound like them. And also don't just listen to things on the big loudspeakers. Yeah, like people always do that. You hear about artists, you know, anybody from Tom Petty to whoever, always taking whatever they do and putting it on a boombox in a small place or in a car to yeah. see how it sounds. Yeah, there are these little speakers in the studio called Oratones, these little box speakers that basically sound like what a clock radio would sound like. And Quincy Jones, you know, spent most of the time mixing off the wall on those because... If you get stuff sounding good on that, it's going to sound great anyway. That's amazing. You must have had some great conversations with Quincy. You dated his daughter for a long time, right? Yeah. Um, I was so intimidated by him. I thought, listen, the last thing Quincy Jones and another guy to like sit down and be like, hey, I'm a producer too. But he was <laughs> such a kind, wonderful guy that he would always invite the conversation, you know? And there was one point where uh, he read in an article that said, so if it was when I had made my first album, Here Comes the Fuzz, and the interviewer said, have you played it for your you know, your girlfriend's dad yet, Quincy Jones. I said, no way, I'm going to have to be, I'm going to have to have a few shots of tequila in me to do that. And I came to his house, it must have been a week after that magazine came out. And I go into the kitchen, he's like, I got the tequila, you got the album. <laughs> so 
That's so That's cool. pretty cool. That's pretty cool. That's an amazing story. Now, of course, Version was a great idea, and that record did amazingly for you. And you've got a lot of people that you had actually worked with before, but when you came to choosing the songs that you did on Virgin, whether it was a Smith Stop Me, if you think you've heard this one before, or Kaiser Chiefs, Oh My God, Valerie, the things that you picked, how did, what was the selection process for you? It was really just songs that I loved, and there wasn't really any rhyme or reason to it because I didn't really think about it like I was making an album. I just thought, like, I'm going to make some covers of some songs that I like to play in my DJ sets just to make them a bit more exciting and i didn't really have anything else going on production wise to be honest i had a bit of free time and i started to you know these songs that you know like i have such a clear memory of uh seeing stop me if you think you've heard this one before for the first time in 120 minutes actually and being like what the hell is this like literally when a song knocks you over that's when there's opening giant 12 string acoustic guitar yeah. chords and johnny marr man right yeah so and good I, it became a bit obvious that it would be interesting to keep the concept like British guitar bands, like with the occasional, you know, things like Kings of Leon mixed in, but really, you know, Coldplay, Kaiser Chiefs, The Jam, The Smiths, Radiohead, just things that I loved. And we made the Radiohead one first, and it suddenly figured out that, okay, if we switch the kind of heavier guitar lines with some horns, it's kind of an interesting sonic and... That was really it. Most of the record was just made with friends at the time, you know. Like Lily doing Oh My God, who you'd worked yeah, with. Yeah, Lily would come to the studio, we'd do a song for her, and then I'd say, like, hey, do you like that Kaiser Chiefs song? Oh, my God, do you want to sing it? She'd be like, yeah. And then with Santi Gold, she had never heard that jam song before, but she heard it instantly. She was like, oh, this is cool. And then we download the lyrics off the internet, and, you know, <laughs> an hour later, you're just singing it. How great are the jam, too? Those, that stuff was so amazing. I just I just read yesterday, I have this weird app on my iPhone that says This Day in Music. Yeah. And it said that This Day in Music today, actually, the, the jam was signed for $12,000 to Polydor Records. Which is amazing, because back then, you know, the bands that we were, there was a cure and fiction through Polydor. Yeah. The deals were very small that yeah. period of time. Buzzcocks, all those bands who were great and made great songs. Yeah. You know, but you know that they when they started, their deals were extremely small. Sure. Because it was all part of that punk and new wave revolution that was happening then. And they thought, ah, oh, you know, we don't have to spend a lot of money here. Yeah. We'll see what happens. But yeah, Weller coming back around again. It's I like, love his solo records, man. The Wake Up the Nation one to me was so great. Yeah, there's some great stuff on there, isn't yeah. it? And Stanley Road. I mean, he's it's, he's almost like elevated to the level of a national treasure now in England. I think he is probably. You know? Yeah, he's like, they, they call him the mod father, as we know. But I mean, with the Jam Style Council, and then the solo records are great. Yeah. You know, like Wildwood, I love all Great. that stuff. This is the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. So let's talk about, about Amy because th that was one of the saddest days. Um, where were you when you found out the news about Amy's death? I was actually in the studio with the gossip and uh, I was halfway through an album with them and uh, it was really strange. It was almost like a turning point. Like when I found out Amy had passed, obviously I was just kind of in disbelief and I, you know, it takes. I'm not even obviously even now fully fine with it and uh, I kind of walked out of the session and I, I never really fully came back to that album I think I, I don't know what it was to be honest I think that I was obviously emotionally you know affected, you're grieving you're I mean, emotionally affected by it but also I think the main thing was that the chemistry of what we had going on the gossip album wasn't really amazing and I think being reminded with the Amy thing about how good it is when it's good and I was just realized that maybe this was something that I was just forcing too hard because Amy was so funny she was like she was so honest and like brutally honest when I'd play any music that I'd work on but she would always surprise me with the ones that she liked I thought that you know 
I had a song on my last album called Lose It in the End where I met, it's the one song that I'm singing it's got Ghostface Killer on it and uh, it was the, probably the last song I think that she'd like and I played on my record and she, she would be so harsh she would just be like you could be three seconds into the song she'd be like turn it off turn it off it's rubbish don't make me listen to this anymore um, and then she would like love like her favorite song on version was like pretty green it wasn't like a soulful one with horns it was like a, it was a jam song one, like a jam yeah. song and then shoved this song on my record I was singing and, and because she could always she had the best no bullshit filter you could she had the best she could tell what the real one was it didn't have to be her taste but she could tell the one that came from the most honest place because that's where all her music came from and I just realized that some of the things that I was working on that I wasn't as honestly into and maybe forcing it or like I couldn't really stand there when the record was over with my arms folded and be like, yeah, listen to this. When you don't have that, you know that it's not kind of all the way. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I, you, you guys could have made a lot of great records together if it, things had turned out differently. I know that there would have been just because there, there was a real friendship there with you two as well, wasn't there? there was, yeah, I mean, there was. And then we'd, it was kind of almost like a brother and sister thing and that's why we have these like kind of stupid fights like i'd only have like with family like i've never had an artist that like i've worked with that we kind of bicker with because it's like you're so close and it sucks that i never make another record with her because we obviously had something special and you know you don't get those kind of collaborators that's like once in a lifetime but um i'm kind of lucky that i got to we got to make back to black and i think her in my head reminding me not to be a sellout is is not a bad thing either right it's kind of like it, it's something one of those life-changing moments where with something like right. that that make you sit and reevaluate what's going on a little bit yeah so tell me about record collection and the guys in the business international the guys you have together here in the band i thought that you know with version it was very much a record it was a bedroom project i played all the instruments you know people come in and sing you play bass guitar right and, and drum loops, yeah all right? the beats and the bass guitar and keys and you know dap kings did the horns but record collection i wanted it to be a live album and, and if i just called it mark ronson i just felt like a liar you know what i mean like yeah. it's like this is Mark, and i was like what if we just call it you know the business international and then you know the labels like absolutely not and i was like well what mark runs in the business international and it's just the business international was just a blanket term for anyone that was on the record doesn't matter if it was you know the guys from the dad kings or you know nick and those guys from antibalas that that play all over it or it's like a collective thing yeah or it, was, or it could be kathy dennis that co-wrote one song like yeah. it's just everybody who collaborated on the record it's a collective it was a fun way to make a record, you know, we just went to the studio every day and we just jammed for 12 hours and we'd take the best bits of those jams and turn them into songs and that was it. A lot of fun though, right? I mean, it was a great time. Great fun and, and, and like people like Jonathan Pierce from The Drums who I wrote, who wrote quite a few songs in there and Alex Greenwald and Andrew Wyatt. These are like these amazing collaborators I get to work with. You know, without them, I'm making instrumental music in a bedroom and it's a bit less probably exciting. Jonathan, of course, Pierce from the drums was in that band Elkland originally. Did you ever hear their stuff or see I them? Never, he, he's told me about them, but I never heard about them. They were good? Yeah. Well, when I was doing A&R Columbia, the guy next to me who worked with me, Greg Buck, signed them. Okay. And I had heard their music but hadn't seen them yet okay. and i go backstage and i look up i go jonathan what's up man it was so crazy because oh, yeah. i had no idea he was the front man for the drums yeah. at that period of time when they were just starting out but yeah i think he's a, he's a great songwriter he's a great songwriter he's got a great voice the project that i'm working on right now is that andrew wyatt from mike snow and i are writing this thing for the royal opera house in uh, london we are commissioned by the main choreographer there in the royal ballet and uh, jonathan pierce 
is one of the main singers of the thing. So Andrew and I have written this music, and then Johnny, Alison Mosshart, and Wale have come in and written these vocal parts to the music, and then we perform it live in the Royal Opera House with the ballet and with them singing it. Amazing. Alison Mosshart from The Kills is on there as yeah, well. Yeah. She's great. She's incredible, and there's some stuff on there, man. I mean, I've always been a fan of The Kills and songs like The Last Goodbye, and she really, you hear her voice over the music. You can tell she's got a fantastic voice, but... I didn't actually know until she started singing some of these other songs and just hitting record on her that she was like this serious. Like her voice is insane to me. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, Les Goodbye is one of the best tracks on that new album. Mm -hmm. I love the album, but that song is so good. Yeah. And it's the latest single as well. What other projects are you working on? You also did Rufus Wainwright recently. Tell me about that project. I just produced his new album and it's coming out in April and uh, it's great. You know, I think that with me as a producer usually you hear a batch of songs and you, then the wheels start to turn and you start to go what's the best context for these songs what's this band supposed to sound like behind these songs and I just got this instant sort of Laurel Canyon sort of slightly Boz Skaggs like mid 70s vibe to it and so we went in and we, we cut the record and the songs are great and there's some brilliant playing on it you've got the same guys that play on you know my albums, Amy's album, and and uh, then you got people like Nels Klein and Nick Zinner and Sean's playing on it. And yeah, and Nick's working on that new Yeah Yeah Yeah's record too at the time, isn't he? I haven't seen I him in a while. So. They were on the, a brief break when I saw him. They yeah. just come off doing the the Carano Trent Reznor immigrant at, song. No, thing? the uh, the one at BAM that they did, the, oh. or was it at St Anne's? The uh, the Carano musical opera oh, that she was at. That's she cool did. that she was doing. It, yeah. yeah. She's phenomenal, too. So working with those things, and you, I know you've got a lot of other projects that are happening right now as well, and you're working on some of that you can talk about and some that you cannot. But I wanted to ask you qu some questions right now just to bring bring it back around to things that you love growing up. What, if any record, is a song that you wish you had written? Well, there's songs that are, that are my favorite songs that I also know that there's not a snowball's chance in hell that I ever would have been able to write a song like that. So is it more like something that I've, being realistic that I probably could have written or something. Oh, no, 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 just, just something right over the top that's great that you love that you just think is one of the perfect songs and one of your favorites. Uh, I mean, I always go back to Steve Winwood stuff for some reason. It's, uh, but like, Can't Find My Way Home is such a gorgeous song to me. Things like Stone Roses, Fool's Gold, um, I Was Made to Love Her by Stevie Wonder. Like, it's so, it's pretty erratic, but. Yeah. And then Welcome to the Terror Dome by Public Enemy. Yeah, there you go, right? Well, because yeah. you've, I mean, you've had the, uh, you know, the fortune to work with a lot of the people that you love, a lot of hip-hop artists, and collaborate with them. What was one of the best collaborations for you, and what was one that you thought would be good and it just it didn't gel? I could, I, one that came to mind as soon as you started to ask was, like, maybe not... The worst, but maybe the most awkward was uh, I was. It was the first time I recorded with Q-Tip for a song for my first album, and uh, he came in the booth. And it's always such a scary, like multi-leveled thing when you're working with somebody who you're such a hero of because a, you're so impressed by them, you're so in awe. But then at the same time, you need to show a little. You know, you have to. You're the producer, so you have to kind of tell them what to do a little bit and, and give that energy. And so with Q-Tip, I kind of, the first verse that he laid down, I wasn't super crazy about, but I was like, how do I tell Q-Tip, this legend, this person, this music I listened to since I was 13? you're a big Tribe Called Quest fan, right? Yeah, well, how do I tell him that this isn't very good and I want to try something else? And he was like, 
So I was like, do you mind just, and I'm just like talking around the whole thing because I don't want to just come out and say it. And he's like, uh, what? And he's just making me, He's he knows what he's doing. He's putting me through the ringer just to give me, and he's like, come in here in the booth and just, just say it into the mic. And he was making me like go through this whole thing. So if I said it into the mic, then I'd realize how stupid that I sounded asking him to, I don't know what the hell I was saying at the time. Then we became good friends and that's fine. Uh, I don't know, another experience where um, working on the last Duran Duran album was pretty exciting because Simon still has the the same voice and the range. You know, a lot of singers, as they mature, they don't have the same thing and they lose a couple notes, you know, the high notes. The octaves they can't do anymore. Yeah. You must have been a fan because right at the time that you started really falling in love with music, right before you moved here, they had already just they'd blown up in the UK at that point, right? They, they were always a huge fan to me because they combined this sort of wannabe chic type rhythm section, you know, with these rock guitars and these fantastic melodies and Nick Rhodes' insane sort of keyboard architecture under the whole thing. So they were a band that I think for all the things I liked really ticked the boxes. And I think they get a bad rap because of the pretty boy thing. But, I mean, you think of View to a Kill, Reflex, Planet Earth, Rio, Girls yeah. on Film. Those first two songs. albums. I mean, I love insane. those records. And, you know, I saw them live do this show at a club in New Jersey in a place called Cedar Grove. It was a ballroom, and I think it was one of the first, on the first sh- album shows. Maybe? It was first actually on Rio. It was okay. Rio, Just Come Out. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and it's funny, too, because I remember interviewing Nick and Simon with my little tape recorder when right. I was like in school. You know, I was like 18 years old, yeah. and they had just come back from shooting the Hungry Like the Wolf video, Mark, and they were all sunburned. I mean, they like painfully <laughs> sunburned from Sri Lanka. So That's where they got wasted, and they were all, they were all doing a lot of a lot of blow at the time and just yes, partying, going nuts there, and yeah. and you know getting bitten by bugs, and you know, but it was it was a great to actually interview them back then, and they were great live. They really could pull it they off. They could really play, and uh, I think working with that, and there's some songs on there, and some some songwriting on this new album that I think is really great, and up there with their best. And sometimes you're just sitting in the studio, and on the other side of the booth is Simon Lebon singing this thing, and you're like, I cannot believe that I'm lucky enough to be sitting here while one of my favorite Duran Duran songs is being formed in front of my eyes like you know like this is you're thinking this song Girl Panic is up there with any of them and here I am I'm sitting there while he's actually making it you know that kind of level of fandom that's it's still I don't mind having that I, I don't think it's goofy I don't think you have to pretend like to do the shit and that you know you're not impressed by anything because I think that that is so infectious with the artists that you work with and I think that you know they always say that okay having Mark Brown was kind of reinvigorating because having him say like hey you guys are great do what you do or whatever i said to them is uh i think that you know it's good i just need to have that ego stroke whatever it is yeah and i think it's you know there's nothing wrong with still being a fan that's what keeps it exciting i mean i feel the same way like i get excited about new records and bands that i love and bands that i used to love doing new things and it's just that's what it's about that's why we're here in the first place that's why you do what you want to do you're listening to The Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. Who have you had a chance to collaborate with, alive or dead, as an artist, you know, would you, would you love to have worked with or work with? I think... Um, you mentioned Hard to Handle earlier, and I thought of Otis Redding, you know? Not <laughs> the Black like Crows. <laughs> um, although I did really like that first Black Crows record when it came out. Yeah. I'm not embarrassed to say. Yeah. yeah, Otis... I mean, Otis Redding. I mean, these guys that... There, there's so many people that are legends but I never think about it in that way like I wish I could work with them because I think the way that everyone I've always worked with has come from this most random 
chance encounter like i met lily allen i overheard her talking in a club about the music that she liked and amy we were introduced by a mutual friend and nas i ran into on the street sometime and and uh unknown and known acts whatever it is and so i never get super hung up thinking i almost get more primed for sort of disappointment if you're thinking like okay i can't wait to work with this person you get in the studio and then you know it's awkward and you never know how that's going to turn out really yeah it depends on what they bring to the table, what they're expecting when they when they come in the studio. Yeah, was Rufus's ideas were they all pretty much preformed when he came in, or was he working in a more collaborative way with you? With Rufus, he just came in with fifteen demos, and it was just either just him at the piano and him at the guitar, and it was sort of my job to give these a rhythm arrangement. And I just spent a week, like I usually do before we get in with the band, just doing demoing, playing you know crappy drums or whatever to get the sound of what the record is. And uh, I think that Rufus was willing, because, you know, he produced his last few records. I think he was willing to relinquish the reins a bit this time. And he's done a few operas and he got some of the, the pomp out. So he was willing, he was kind of ready to make a, a roots, I guess, just a more groovy, simplified album, you know, which was great. And I think the minute we went in and we tracked the whole thing in Brooklyn, you know, 16 songs in eight days and just at that pace, you don't have too much time to reflect. You're just like, OK, does this feel good? Let's go. And uh, I love it. I mean, I love this record. I think the thing with Rufus is he gives you like these songs that are so unique and they're so meaty. There's so much in them, chords, lyrics, melodies. A little bit in the same way that I felt when I heard Amy's demos that like as a producer, it's a challenge, but it's also like you're being given gold. So you're just shaping gold as opposed to trying to take bronze and make it look gold. Yeah, well, you know that old joke they always say, you can polish a turd, but it's still a turd at the end of the day, so it's great, you know. Yeah, it's a a (laughs) bit like that. So I do do think this Rufus record is cool. It's You know, it's in that lineage of the 70s songwriters when they started to have, like, these great rhythm section things like Harry Nilsson and... Van Morrison, people like that who had a lot of different people to play with. Harry Nilsson, got to talk about an underrated guy with so many great songs. Amazing. And I just saw that documentary. Did you see it? No, I haven't. Which one is it? It's great. It's called Who is Harry Nilsson? I got to get that. It's got great stuff and it's got a lot of Ringo talking a lot of you know footage from you know the john the lost the lost weekend with john and may pang and everybody there and and uh you just realize how influential it is i mean this is the first person at the height of the beatles you know artistic and commercial career 1967 they come out and say yeah the only guy that we're really listening to is this guy harry nelson you know this american guy who couldn't even get arrested at the time and then you know, he had those huge records finally on. It was app. Was he on Apple? Uh, he actually was on RCA, but on he, RCA. the Midnight Cowboy theme, everybody's talking. The Fred Neil folk yeah, song yeah. was the real irony about it is most of his his two biggest hits, everybody's talking, and Without oh, You, which okay. was number one, Without were covers. Yeah, yeah. But he were, but he wrote songs hits for like the Three Dog Night covered, and all his other yeah. people had big hits with. Um, and Without You, he happened to be in the studio the same day Badfinger were when they were writing and recording their version of Without You. He heard it and then really improved on it it yeah. was amazing and then had that number one hit with it it's yeah. incredible i was watching that documentary because the producer that he did that record with this guy richard perry yeah who went on to do all these pointer sisters he's like a bit of like a like that slick la vibe of it, yeah but. he was out there he was out, he, at the same time guys like peter asher you know from peter yeah. and gordon who was producing ronstadt and a lot of the kind of laurel canyon artists and people out there but i but i definitely <laughs> 
look at that era and I was like, that was a cool time to be a producer. You know, this guy walking around the studio seven foot with his like bell bottoms and big Jufro. I was like, I would have been rocking that look if I was, (laughs) you know, in Rack Studios in 73. Yeah, Rack Studios in the UK. And speaking of uh, rocking a look, you, GQ magazine voted you uh, the, the best dressed man in 2009, which was really cool because they're, they're right. I mean, you know. Oh, thanks, man. <laughs> hey, can I ask you also, um, tell me about, you know, your your two sisters, your twin sisters, Charlotte and Samantha. Yeah. I heard some of the great tracks on Samantha's last record, and there was one that you, there was, I think, one or two that you were One, on, right? yeah, Skyscraper. Skyscraper's yeah. great, and it's kind of like a waitress's vibe to it. I was I listening, know, yeah. doesn't it? We, I was totally into the, the idea of going for that, and actually, uh, me and my sister wrote that with Santi Gold, and she's got that great sing-songy lyrical thing. So, yeah, it definitely is a. It does have a waitress's vibe on that song. Yeah, I love that. As soon as I heard, oh. it, I was like, God, this has got a waitress's vibe. I feel like it's, yeah, I love yeah. the waitress's song. I mean, listen, that Chris, any Christmas song you're gonna get sick of because you hear it every year, but that's kind of the one that I don't mind whenever it comes on the radio. It just puts you in a good mood. It's got that cool, fun sing-songy yeah. thing, you know. Yeah. That and Fairy Tale New York by the Pogues are my two favorites. That's amazing. That's one of the one of the true greats as well. So, Mark, what about you as far as performing uh, again? Are you going to go out and do some touring at any point? I think so. You know, I've just done the song, the theme song for the uh, Move to the Beat campaign for the London Olympics 2012, which is like the official kind of, I guess, Coca-Cola song for the London wow. Olympics. that's great. So did you write the song and produce it? Uh, yeah. Are you singing it, it too? Or? No, no. It's with uh, Katie B., this okay. English singer who's yeah. great. And uh, I went around the world recording all these athletes training, all these Olympic athletes. But, like, seriously, you know, spending a couple of days in each country recording gymnasts in South Africa and England and this archer in Singapore and, and you know, runners and sprinters in, in Russia and used all the sounds to make the track. So, for example, I take the Olympic runner and put on a treadmill till her heart rate went up to 120 and then put a microphone in a stethoscope and record her heart rate at the tempo of the song and her tempo heart rate's driving the song and all these other crazy things and so that's that's this song it's called anywhere in the world so we're going to be around i think for the olympics kind of performing that and then i i'm probably gonna i dj with zane Lowe, this dj from english radio i know i know zane yeah. he's originally from new zealand and yeah. great guy great Zane's guys cool. so we do we have this dj duo where we do a lot of stuff together in the summer in ibiza yeah and then what do you spin because i know that he likes a lot of he spins mostly the alt rock on the bbc how does that work with you guys he does alt rock but now as the scene some of the he definitely plays some of the harder dance stuff and the dubstep and the, you yeah. know he plays dance music that has a guitar energy to it you right know? exactly and that's what he plays on a show when he does and, it. and he gets the crowd super duper hyped and i'm pretty mellow when i play but for some reason when i'm on with him like i'm suddenly Buster Rhymes like I'm like the hype man jumping up and down so yeah I enjoy playing with him a lot so uh, we do that in Ibiza during the summer and then I guess I'm just going to start working on another a solo record you know uh, sometime later in the year well we look forward to it you got to tell Zane I said hello as well he's, he's a good definitely. man he's a good man I've seen him in a while you know it's funny some of the, speaking of the other BBC uh, DJs I used to sleep on Marianne Hobbs couch in Hackney really? like a, back in the day like you know right. what I mean when I would come over yeah, there yeah, which yeah. is pretty funny yeah you know so she's still on she's, she's still out. doing her thing yeah playing yeah. some dance stuff she's cool yeah. Marianne was great she was married to Miles Hunt of the Wonder Stuff back then oh really yeah Oh, cool. I actually really dug the Wonder stuff. 
Yeah, they were a great band. Yeah. They were really cool. You know that song Sleep Alone that's on the third album, Never Loved Elvis, and there's like the phone call in the beginning of it? That's my voice on the album going, listen, call immediately. Time is running out. We have to do something crazy before we die. Really? That's me. Yeah, isn't that cool? It's on that. <laughs> and it was a real message that you was, left on time? No, it was actually, we. it was from the Hunter S. Thompson book, Generation of Swine, and okay. it was a, no, a message that Ralph Steadman left on okay. Hunter S. Thompson's answer machine, and Miles wanted me to do it. Yeah. So as I'm... My, the radio in, in on the Jersey Shore doing my radio show yeah. and he's like they got me on the phone back going back to the studio to Mick Glossop the producer doing reading it like saying it like five times yeah. and then they found the one they wanted and threw yeah. it on the song but it was cool I listen back to it now yeah definitely Mark it's it's just so great to see you it really is yeah, absolutely one one other quick question have you and your sister DJ together have you done some stuff together and and when you when she's followed in your footsteps to want to start DJing what kind of advice did you give her or did you kind of let her do her own thing she is such a great DJ now and because she plays so much more regularly than I am. Like, I see her go, you know, kill it in a dance floor and, you know, these big room clubs that if I went on in the same club, I'd probably clear the dance floor because now I'm at a point where I just want to play what I like. But, um, yeah, we used to DJ together all the time and we still do. You know, after uh, Duran played in an Atlantic City about six months ago, we went and played the after thing. And we see each other all the time because I'm in, an L- in L.A. a lot the past couple months. And she's a, she's a great DJ. I didn't really give her much advice. I think, you know, she's got her own taste and she figured out things for herself. But, you know, she's... She's killing it. Yeah, and your and your sister Charlotte's doing her fashion stuff, right? She's yeah, Charlotte's got her line, and she does great too. You know, we all kind of started working hard, and we're lucky enough to find things that we like doing from an early age. So, you know, I'm very proud of my sisters. Yeah, well, they're great, and thank you so much for uh, Mark. I appreciate you coming in today to do this. Thanks for being the first guest on the Hivecast. I'm, it's an honor. This has been the Hivecast with Matt Pinfield. For all things music, news, interviews, live events, and more, go to mtvhive.com.